It's a chilly late morning in November in New York City, and you and I are wearing coats and scarves. We're coasting down a street that has been converted temporarily into a market. Passing stalls are powered by generators, and they're selling ponchos and smoked garlic salt and soaps and wind-up toys with flashing eyes. You know, all of the market classics. And we are heading towards the big red signage of a building called the Strand Bookstore, a place that contains 18 miles of books in one several storied shop front. We've come here to meet up with this episode's guest, Karen Chi. Karen! Hi! Hey, how are you? Nice to see you too. Karen wrote for the Golden Globes in 2019 and went on to write for Late Night with Seth Meyers, where she's currently the show's beloved millennial. She's also been published in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, McSweeney's and many more. And these days she spends her evenings doing stand-up comedy and coordinating shows at venues around New York City. Karen has a style of comedy that is both bitingly truthful and incredibly charming. In our interview, she talks about the approach she's taking to learn more about her own voice, which when I heard this was wild to me because going into the interview, I had fully accepted that Karen already has her own style and way of saying things. She tells these jokes where she presents a truth, laughs it off with the audience, and then just as everyone is relaxing, she takes them with her to this extra truthful and unexpected place that they just have to go along with. And a really great example of this is this talk she gave about Darwin's fox. You can find it online, and there's this moment where she goes from discussing the fact that Darwin's fox isn't actually a fox to presenting a list of lies white men have told us that we believe. And her list of lies is so entertaining, but beneath it is this pervasive truth about the way society has been built. And everyone has to laugh because the list is so true and presented with such charm and it's the best. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But, you know, going back and listening to this interview again, it occurred to me that the thing that makes Karen's voice Karen's is that she believes herself. And she believes in herself, but she also believes that what she's doing is great stuff and that it's really interesting and that her observations are real and true and she's not sorry for them. Karen also mentions how she deals with being put in hectic or uncomfortable situations, which leads me to tell you that we've decided to sneak into the Strand to have our conversation. Well, okay, so what I was thinking is, why don't we sneak in? We find a corner made of bookshelves in YA fantasy that's partially obscured by a ladder. We shimmy off our coats and sit on the wooden floor like regular people in a bookstore with microphones. Karen, why are we in the Strand? (laughs) Um, Okay, I love the Strand. I... I love it for a lot of reasons. Obviously, I really like reading. I'm really close with my grandpa. He's like one of my best friends. And when he lived in the U.S. very briefly, I want to say in like the late 50s, he lived in New York and would come to the Strand. And so it just feels like a very lovely thing of every time I come here, I'm like, oh, my grandpa was here once like decades and decades ago when he was like a young man. And that's very, very sweet to me. And also when I first got the job that I currently have, after my second paycheck and it felt like, oh, I've got a job for real. It's like a steady gig. My friend and I, his name is Sage and he's also a comedy writer. And we were both talking about how before we would always have to like borrow books and go to the library and like try and find the cheapest possible version of books that we wanted to read. And so it felt like a really cool triumph to like get a paycheck and come here and very luxuriously be like, I want a new hardback for no reason other than I can. And it was very, very fun. Yeah. I love the strand. (laughs) You're 
grandfather, and yes. correct me if I'm wrong, also had a bit of an influence in terms of your exposure to late night when you were younger. Yeah, yeah. My grandpa's a huge Johnny Carson fan. And so he watched Johnny Carson a lot and also has a lot of Johnny's mannerisms. So when I started watching Johnny Carson after, I remember being like, oh, that man acts like my grandpa. Like, they speak English in a kind of similar voice. And also uh, the way he moves his hands and when he talks, he does this thing sometimes. And I I don't know who does that other than Johnny. I, so sorry, it's like it's tracing to, your finger. Yeah, it's like he just sort of brushes his face in a certain way. Both men do that. It's very charming to me. <laughs> so from that point yes. to actually beginning to write funny stuff, yes. what happened for you to, to want to do comedy? That's a great question. I don't really know. I was interested in a lot of things growing up, and I was always very into school. Like I was a huge nerd, and I loved learning. And I didn't really watch any comedy television until I was in about eighth grade. So I just truly didn't know it existed. And then when I started watching it, I watched like The Office and Whose Line Is It Anyway and like The Daily Show and I just, my mind was blown. And I was like, oh, this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it just seemed like everyone in those shows was having so much fun and I wanted to have that amount of fun in my life. So I started looking into it and like watching more things and being like, oh, I wonder if I could come up with these ideas. And I like learned about different writers and how they could, you know, jump from show to show and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a pretty surprising process for me also to realize that that was what I wanted to do. What about it was surprising for you? I think I'd always thought of myself as someone who's going to be very academic and maybe become a writer in like a serious basement writer. You know what I mean? Like somebody who lives in an attic or like a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, like I wanted to do speech writing for a very long time. So something that the idea of pursuing a career that's rooted in being very silly was very surprising to me. Do you remember at that age the thing that you found funniest? Yeah, I remember having my mind blown by political satire just because I hadn't known that was a thing before. And I remember watching The Daily Show and being like, oh, you can do this? Like, it just felt like there were no limits on what you could write jokes about. And that, in hindsight, seems so simple, but in the moment, it felt massive. Because I was very interested in politics and I did a lot of local government work and things like that. And it just felt like that was somehow an untouchable institution. And then, of course, you know, if you watch any episode of The Daily Show back then, they're so ridiculous about people taking themselves too seriously and pointing out hypocrisies and things like that. Do you feel that you get to do that in your job now? Yeah, I think so. We read a lot of news, which is both good and bad. I think it's great because I would otherwise read the news a lot anyway. And I think it is definitely important to be up to date on things. But it is also hard because so much of it is really sad and aggravating and upsetting and then getting to write jokes about it is very cathartic this process of reading the news on a yeah. cycle and it sounds like kind of having to have a bit of a discipline around it in yeah. your day-to-day life yeah. was that something that you anticipated being part of working in late night yeah um it actually was because I went into this job knowing that um especially because I write for Seth Meyers who is a very politically oriented comedian especially with his current show and so it's like okay cool like this is something I will have to do which was actually very appealing to me I love watching shows that have nothing to do with politics that are really fun like I think you should leave is, is such an amazing sketch show but I think for me personally with what's happening in the world if I were to work on something and think about things non-stop without ever touching on politics it does feel uncomfortable and irresponsible somehow not that those shows are irresponsible in any way, but for me personally, yeah. Yes, I totally, I know <laughs> what you mean. I am wondering then if there were any surprises for you 
moving from writing satire into working in an office environment doing late night. I was most surprised by how social the job is and how much of it is learning just how to hang out with people all day long. And because I had been freelancing before, I'd spent all day alone most days. And then in the evenings, I would do shows and that's how I would see people and have genuine like social interactions. But right now, the job is largely, obviously, it's mostly writing, but all the writers are in the same room. And everyone's very silly and very kind. So there's lots of bits and like ongoing conversations and stuff. And yeah, I didn't realize how tiring that also gets just because I'm not very extroverted and so especially the first four or five months I would come home at the end of each day and be like oh it was so fun but I just don't want to talk to anybody anymore and I would hole up in my room and go to bed very early. (laughs) What's changed from that point to now? I think it just feels like a muscle I feel like I I'm still enjoying it the same amount but now I come home and I want to hang out with people again or I want to do more shows or I feel like I have more of a bandwidth to be able to do creative projects. Going all the way back to before you had this where were you living and what were you doing? So I graduated in 2017 and then I went home for a little bit hung out with my parents this is in a suburb near San Francisco which was very fun and then I initially wanted to take a full year off before trying to pursue any career I was like oh I'm gonna I don't know I was also thinking about maybe going to grad school and was thinking of like oh maybe I'll like just work and do something and earn money and read a lot and travel you know and things like that and then maybe about three months or so in, I got very bored. And I was like, okay, I want to do more things. Oh, wait, I forgot that immediately after graduating, I wanted to do the thing that was most scary to me at the time, which was acting, and I'm very bad at acting. But it felt like if I didn't do something really terrifying immediately after graduating, I would get too comfortable and not take risks of any kind. And so I did this like intensive acting program in New York for six weeks where everyone was like an extremely good actor except for me and I had had no training and it was terrifying in a really good liberating way. And because I had no aspirations of becoming like an actor on Broadway or whatever, it felt like there were no stakes and the only stakes were me getting comfortable with being out of my comfort zone. So that was really nice. After that, I went home and then I did this month-long writing residency in Vermont And when I was in Vermont, I wrote a lot of bad things that I threw out, but it was really nice to get into the practice of writing a ton. And after that, I moved to New York. In terms of logistics and decisions, Mm -hmm. what spurred the decision to move to New York at that time? How did you go about it? I think around that time, my current manager had reached out to me being interested in my work. And I was like, oh, this is very exciting. Like, someone's reading the stuff I post online, which is always exciting. So far, I was like, I think it's just me and my mom. (laughs) And so, yeah, it felt like a good time to maybe go to New York and meet people. I also felt like there, there was nothing expected of me. And so I was like, oh, if I go and I can try and I can fail and I can do whatever... And it felt very open-ended, which was really nice. I also really like sort of packing up and restarting. (laughs) That's very, I enjoy that very much. Yeah. So it sounds like you have a keen sense of adventure. That's very nice of you. Yeah. (laughs) That you are realistic about working in a comedy industry or working Mm -hmm. in an industry that you love. You did this thing that I actually think is really wise. And again, I don't mean this as a compliment, but you made yourself uncomfortable the moment that you could and that you were aware that that was an important thing to do I think I actually really like feeling I really like feeling comfortable but I like being in uncomfortable spaces a lot for me it would be so fun to be in the eye of a hurricane you know what I mean where everything around you is obviously tragic and I don't want that but um (laughs) I really like being put in spaces where everything is sort of 
built to cause friction and then me being like okay I have to figure out how to be calm that is the most fun for me and I think that's why I like doing stand-up and stuff also I don't like being up in a place where everybody can look at me and then judge me on whether or not I'm funny but doing that and then forcing myself to be comfortable on stage and to do stand-up is like very thrilling yeah something about that is very pleasing (laughs) okay do you think it might be okay it may not be Mm -hmm. the challenge of discipline in that environment at the same time as everything around you being a real thing I don't know what you described just reminds me a little bit of when I was growing up I played piano Uh and you know you'd get on stage and you'd have to play at a concert yeah and then the only way that I could get through the concert which I loved yeah yeah, yeah. was making sure that I'd practiced being really mentally disciplined on stage so that my mind didn't go to the really common stage Friday thoughts Yeah, yeah 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 because I just had to focus on delivering my material yeah and it was the the best feeling I fully yeah that makes a lot of sense to me I think there's something also very alluring to me about being able to make space for myself in either a place that does not want me to have space or a place that is so hectic that it's difficult to find calm um yeah, it is also, I think, the best way for me to really sort of tune in on what kind of environment I'm in. Do you, do you know what I mean? If you have two pieces that don't fit well together, then if you hold them next to each other, that's the best way to be like, oh, this is why they don't fit. Yeah, something about that is always very educational. <laughs> you just spoke about one of the frictions being being in places where you historically have not been accommodated yeah, to yeah. be in that space. Mm-hmm. Looking back yeah. on growing up in your family and growing up in the San Francisco area, are there places where you can see that you began to have this habit or enjoyment of putting yourself in these situations or putting yourself in environments where you were not accommodated? That's a great question. I think for a very long time I didn't have any sense of that. Do you know what I mean? When you're a child, everything sort of, at least for me, was very rosy and lovely and fun and um so I think there was never really a feeling of I'm not welcome in certain spaces but maybe because of that I would go into those spaces and because I was doing well in them that became like a self-reinforcing cycle of like oh yeah I'll just sort of enter this place and be myself and it'll be fine and then I think it became more overtly recognized probably in college but at that point I'd sort of built up this resilience of whatever I'll I'm gonna do it and then at that point sort of became exciting sometimes (laughs) and to get to do that what helped you build that resilience and I ask this because I think about women of color and I also think of queer people who would really benefit from learning that resilience so that they can deliver their own work I wish I knew I almost wonder a lot of people are wrong a lot of the time you know what I mean and so if people have rules that I think are bad and arbitrary then sort of like oh well I'm more correct than you are by being here and that sort of gives me a sense of empowerment of these people in charge don't know what they're doing or these people here are just all incorrect (laughs) um yeah which I think maybe comes from a sense of slight arrogance on my part of being more sure that I'm right to be in a place than someone else's or as much as someone else's But I think that's fine. I think, so I have a niece and I love when she and like her other young friends, she's six years old. And so 
they're all little girls and I love that they're all very bossy and very arrogant right now because I think the world is going to do so much to try and break that down you know and so I keep trying to be like you're the best you're so funny you're so smart just because I think the more you start out with the higher you'll end up at you know yeah I don't know how to explain it otherwise I think there's a sense of like no if you believe in yourself and you believe that you're right even though other people are telling you not to does this make any sense? What you're describing as well by giving that reinforcement to your nieces yeah. is the benefit of having people who are like you or have a similar lived experience to you yeah. reassuring you. I guess so. It is also a thing of me being very aware that I think the world that she's entering is even better than the world I get to enter in terms of gender equality, which is so great. But it is definitely a lot of signs being like, this is how women should be, and this is what you should... Like, I remember when I was growing up, people told me I laughed too loudly, and it was okay because my mom would be like, no, laugh however loudly you want, like, who cares? And I think if my mom hadn't done that, I would have definitely restrained my own laughter, which is crazy to think about. And so whenever my niece is... Someone is trying to sort of give her a certain perimeter to worry about, you know, like a boundary not to overstep emotions, like, no, do whatever you want, like, it's okay... Something that I've noticed about some of your comedy is that you are the most charming (laughs) comedian when it comes to talking about whiteness. That's so that's so nice of you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I'm white, so I I feel like I don't know if it's good that I think that. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think I'm a very smiley person generally, and it's very fun for me to be on stage making fun of white people and then also being like but you like me <laughs> and I'm going to keep making fun of you but also you kind of want to be my friend <laughs> it's it's so great it's wonderful <laughs> so nice. and you do have a really endearing quality to you I don't know if you ever read the comments on YouTube I, I don't, don't recommend I that don't. you do but I have yeah. for you <laughs> oh, thank you so much and there was a Seth Meyers segment that you do about being a millennial oh yes yeah. and the comments underneath were just about how lovely you are and oh. how fun you are to watch and how we need more of you on television. <laughs> it was so nice. I was genuinely shocked. I'm also shocked. That's very nice of those people. Yeah, I absolutely don't read comments because I'm worried they're going to be gross and awful and someone's trying to murder my family. <laughs> <laughs> you have a really broad scope of, of comedy, though. What do you find really funny and entertaining that you love to think about or... Um, pitch as ideas? I like really quiet, small, awkward moments. I think that's the funniest to me. My mom and aunt and I went on this trip to Belgium about a month ago and I filmed parts of it that I thought were hysterical, which was like at the end of the day, my aunt wanted to fill 20,000 steps. And so she just kept walking around the hotel room being like, okay, I have 100 more steps, I have 50 more steps. And so I filmed that being like, that's so funny. And she was doing it so earnestly. And there were moments where I think someone's fork dropped and my mom wanted to ask for a new one but couldn't get the attention of the person. Also, that person didn't speak English and it was just quiet moments of like, hi, ah, no, okay, sorry, ah, I don't want to bother. Like, just those quiet, quiet small moments I think are the funniest. Yeah, and I love paying attention to those because that's often a lot warmer and sweeter and more genuine to me than someone being, like, loud and obnoxious and, you know, trying to be the class clown of any kind you know I don't know awkward moments I think are so funny and endearing and very humanizing everybody has them yeah (laughs) what does a day in your office look like um it's very fun so I all the writers are generally split up into two groups and you can go back and forth if you want to but I mostly write for monologue jokes 
So we have a few deadlines throughout the day. Um, work technically starts at 9.30, but I'll usually get in between like 8.45 and 9, mostly because I live in Brooklyn and the trains are always delayed, so I want to make sure you know, to give myself time to get there. Um, and so then we write jokes until about 1.30, and that's when we send in all our jokes of that morning to our head writer and our writer assistants. And then they go through and the head writer picks a selection of, you know, however many he wants to bring into the mono read, which is a meeting with Seth at two o'clock. And then he sort of speed reads through all the jokes. And that's actually great because a lot of times, because he's such a funny person, if he reads, I would bet like a normal sentence, if you read it in a funny way, I feel like it would get a laugh. And so because he's speed reading them, if it still gets a laugh, that means it's like actually a very funny joke and it will do well in front of an audience later on. And so we have that. And then... We write more jokes by 3.15, and then we have rehearsal at 4.15, and that's when the audience coordinators will bring in a bunch of tourists just, like, from 30 Rock, like, from the building, and bring them in, and we try all our jokes in front of them. And that's always really tricky, because sometimes all the guests are people who are from international cities. Like, they're not from here, and because of that, they're like, we don't know your politics, we don't know what you're making fun of. And sometimes it'd be, like, all Americans, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, no, this is great, we understand where you're coming from. So that's always a little bit tricky, but very fun. And then the show tapes at 6.30. And as soon as it starts taping, all the writers go home. We don't stay to watch the show. <laughs> I guess you can watch it on the television. Yeah, we'll just like get up and watch it the next day on YouTube. <laughs> um, just quickly, I saw a security guard look at us and then walk off. And I'm wondering if yeah. we should... Maybe uh, we should relocate? Relocate, Yeah. yeah. Where are we now? We're at Pret a Manger <laughs> across the street from the Strand. Yeah, quality establishment. Thanks yeah. so much, Pret. So we were talking about yes. what a day in your show yeah. looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is your favorite thing to do in your job? The writing part is definitely very fun, obviously. And I think writing a script and then giving it to somebody else, being like, do you mind giving me notes on this is also really exciting because then they'll come back with something that you couldn't have thought of on your own, which is very exciting. There are parts, because we have so many deadlines throughout the day, after each deadline, there's like a certain amount of time when we just sort of fuck around, which is really fun. And people are so silly, then we do a lot of bits and things, which is very exciting. Yeah, I don't know. It's a really delightful <laughs> job. Yeah. I remember when you wrote for the Golden Globes, there was a really potent story attached to it about you not only recognizing that you wanted to write for something and then finding a way to do it, but also recognizing that Sandra O oh was exactly somebody who you would be amazing at writing yeah, I jokes was, with. That's true. I was so, so excited when I found out she was hosting just as like a fan like I was so excited to watch whatever show that was going to be and yeah I tried really hard and got to write for the Golden Globes which was very fun and then met people there who write for Seth Meyers and I was on my way back to New York and about to interview at a couple different writing jobs but I think everyone in town who is sort of in late night knows that this is the job a lot of people really want. Like, it's known for having a very nice work environment, and our bosses are very kind. And so I was just like, this is the dream. I was very excited. Yeah. <laughs> I think Seth is also the only host that I know of on Late Night who is a white guy who has segments about his... Well, it is not. It is about his whiteness, and it isn't. It's about... Are you talking about Joke Seth Joke Seth yeah, yeah, that's true. I actually think one of the nicest things he does is anytime there's a story or a set of jokes or whatever that are really good and 
people would like to hear and they just can't come from him. He'll just let whoever wrote it do it, which is really nice. So Amber Ruffin does a lot. Jenny Hickel does a lot. Um, my friend Allie Horde did stuff about Florida because she's like from Florida. And I did a thing on like Asian American Heritage Month. It's just stuff where I feel like because he is a writer first and doesn't have a massive ego, you know, he's like, oh, these are great jokes and people should hear them and is happy just to do the best type of comedy rather than a comedy that is making him look like the cool guy. <laughs> Based on that, yeah. what do you think allyship in comedy looks like and yeah. could look like? Well, I think it's not only giving somebody the space and ability to make things, but also then whatever support they need to make up for how difficult it is to do it, if that makes sense. Um, oftentimes I think allyship is like shutting up, and that's also very nice it's a lot of letting other people talk and letting them explain themselves if they want to and also if they don't want to being like that's fine I'll just take you at your word there is also a lot of discussion in late night now about diversity hiring yeah yeah what are your thoughts um almost all of my friends of color have at some point been called a diversity hire by a white person who does not know what that really means. I think it's really annoying because a room would genuinely benefit from diversity. Like, it's so obvious to me that of course it would, that anytime someone doesn't, like if a room is very white and male and they don't hire a woman and or a woman of color, I'm just sort of like, well you, this is self-harm. You're not doing yourself any favors by doing this. And I also feel like a lot of my friends and I, especially the ones who were like born and raised here and had like the regular public school education and stuff, we were all raised with the same stories that these men grew up with. And all these stories are usually focused on a white guy, right? So that perspective is something I know so well. Like I know it so, so well. I grew up reading all the same books. I read The Great Gatsby, like every single thing about that I was educated to understand. So if I'm entering that room, I know that perspective that those people already have and they don't know my perspective as a woman of color and they don't know what it's like being Asian they don't know what it's like being a woman so tangibly you can literally just write down hello I not only have what you offer but I also have more and you want that so it's insane to me when people don't hire that and also the idea of calling someone a diversity hire as an insult I think is just very dumb <laughs> I also feel like my brother and I were talking about this because my brother is in a different industry but he also is like the only Asian person at his company of, I want to say like a hundred and something people, which is just so many people. Um, and I think when he first got there, he was like, oh no, did I only get this spot because I'm Asian? And we had to sort of sit and think through how if they had one spot available, let's pretend, and they were trying to pick a person of color for it, that means you have to be so good. It's not like you just get anything for free. So that phrase is wild. I think people toss it around a lot and in uh way that's often belittling but yeah anyway that's all my thoughts <laughs> in my interview with Millie Tamaras yeah, we yeah. were talking about the difference between the concept of diversity yeah. and acts of inclusion yeah I do feel like at some point every new word goes from becoming like impactful and powerful and meaningful to becoming two-dimensional and then you just need to find a new word to bring back that original intent and then that becomes two-dimensional again like repeatedly so I'm sure that'll happen with active inclusion as well like not because that actual definition is bad but just because that's what seems to be happening over time diversity is just visual and active inclusion is like maybe bringing in people's stories as well I will say I think that's what initially diversity was supposed to mean so again it's like that flattening of a word I think there's a real fear of shaking up the status quo 
not only because people in power will lose things, but also it would just be a lot of work. And it seems like not many people want to do that much work. But it is always, I think, very rewarding when something like that happens. Yeah. Could you talk to me about a piece of comedy or satire that yeah. can come from anywhere okay. that you really admire and why you admire it? Yes. Okay, so I'm thinking of two things. One is uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian, which I think is just one of the best movies ever. It's so funny. If you haven't seen it, it satirizes uh, like Christianity and institutional religion. And it satirizes it so brilliantly without ever being directly rude to Christians. And of course, a lot of people were offended, but I think they maneuvered it so well where in the movie you can even see there's an actual Jesus and then there's just masses of people falling around this guy named Brian, which is such a funny name for that character. And it so artfully points out a lot of flaws in massive people flocking to some idea. And that was also like the first satirical movie I ever saw, so I think it impacted me a lot more than anything else, partly also because of nostalgia. That is, I think, is very smart and stupid and silly and extremely genius. And then a different one that I think is so good is a sketch by Mitchell and Webb called Number Wing. Have you seen this? No. Okay, Number Wing is just this game show <laughs> where it's David Mitchell, Robert Webb, and Olivia Coleman is also on it, which is, she's the best, where people just say random numbers and then they either win or lose. And it's like high energy. It's so funny. And it's just pure, ridiculous joy. And those are like, in my mind, the two like best ideals of comedy of like one is smart and satirical and you're ripping something apart and showing how it's hypocritical and the other one is just like, sheer joy. <laughs> Both are also instances of British comedy. Do you enjoy British comedy? I do a lot, yeah. I think um, I think a lot of, well, I don't know how much of it doesn't make it over to the US, but yeah, I watch so much of it and I think it's so funny. I love like Richard Iowati, I think is like the funniest person in the world. I just read his new book, which was great. Um, and yeah, I don't know, I love it so much. <laughs> Okay, was Richard Ayoade also, for some reason, in the film, there's this Paddington 2? No. no. <laughs> Is that what you're talking about? No, he's no, in it. But, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Do you love Paddington 2? love Paddington so Whoa. much. Paddington 2, I think, is hands down one of the best movies ever made. Oh my god, okay. Yeah, it's brilliantly Talk us made. through it's why just, you love it. All the characters are really well crafted and defined, and then everything that gets set up in the first half of the movie pays off in the second half. Just so satisfying, so funny. Hugh Grant is unbelievably good in it, and he plays like this ridiculous evil guy who is an actor, and so that character dresses up as a lot of different characters, and he does all of them so delightfully and is clearly like having fun. It's such a good movie. <laughs> You've just blown my mind. Yeah, and I'm you have so to watch glad it. that I know this now. I was Paddington for Halloween this year. It was the best. Were you? Yeah. How did you put together that costume? Well, I already had like yellow rain boots and a blue raincoat. And so then I was like, oh, I just need a red bucket hat and I want one. <laughs> so it worked out. You nailed it. It was so fun. Oh my gosh. That is something I love about the US. It's like the effort you guys go to dress up at Halloween. Yeah, people it's go impressive. all out. It's really impressive. Yes. <laughs> What do you have coming up at the moment that you're really excited about for your own writing? And what do you need to get it done well? I think I need a lot of time. And so I will often set aside large blocks of time and then guard it and being like, sorry, I'm very busy. And like, if people want to be like, I can't do that. I just need all day. And I know that's how my brain operates. So that is something I very much stick to. And then I read a lot in general, but I think I'm trying to do more just in terms of stretching my brain and 
reading in other people's voices constantly is always very grounding for me and trying to figure out what my voice is because I get swayed extremely easily. So, like, if I read Jane Austen, I'll be like, oh, this is how I speak, you know, like, for a little while. And if I read a lot of different voices back-to-back, it's very helpful being like, oh, whichever one I gravitate back to is my actual self. Yeah, I think so. I go on a lot of long walks. I really like zoning out uh, and not thinking. (laughs) I don't know if that's helpful, but I think I need to zone out regularly um, to sort of reset my brain. Yeah. This idea of finding your voice is really really challenging and interesting to me. Yeah, so hard. Are there moments where you hear your voice or you see something you've done and you think, yeah, that is really me? And what are those moments for you? It's really tricky. I think um, I feel like a lot of it in the beginning has to do with quantity. Like, you just have to write a ton and hopefully eventually you'll find some sort of through line or some recurring perspective or take even, like, the way you structure your sentences, you know? That becomes your voice... The moments that are funniest to me are when my friends will send me something and be like, this sounds like you wrote it. And I'll be like, oh my God, it does. And then I realize like, oh, that's a thing. As I've been talking to people who write in late night, it's become really clear that um, for some people, late night is a wonderful thing they love to do, but it's not the end game. Mm. It's part, You have to really love writing comedy yeah. and you have to love writing with a team. And as you said earlier in our interview, love being able to read the news and interpret that into yeah, jokes. Yeah, yeah but that it's often part of a career trajectory. Yeah, a lot of people start in late night. Where do you want to go? It's hard because this was my dream job. I don't really know where I want to go. I think I just want to do whatever seems most fun to me and what is most satisfying and rewarding. And right now it is this job. I really want to write funny books and I really want to maybe write a funny movie. But I don't really have... um, a set plan of like, I'm going to move to LA at a certain time or whatever. Hopefully I never have to move to LA, but yeah, we'll see. I also really want to just be like a happy grounded person and have a family and, um, have like a good life outside of this industry and my job. So I guess my main goal is not to get too sucked into this like crazy industry that seems to sort of occupy everyone's brains a little bit too much sometimes. Like all my friends who do comedy, when I hang out with them, we don't really talk about comedy. We talk about our lives and what we've been interested in and that is the best whereas sometimes you meet with people and it's purely job related stuff and that feels very soul-sucking to me. (laughs) At the inaugural Satire and Humour Festival in 2019 in New York City, Karen had appeared on a panel hosted by festival co-director Tulio Espinoza on diversity in comedy. Karen had pretty recently started working for Seth Meyers and after the festival, I interviewed her over Skype for a Satire and Humour Festival series. At the end of our Skype session, I asked her if she had any questions that had come up after being on the panel and she did. She had this fantastic question about forming relationships and friendships in writers' rooms and it's the kind of question that you could really only come up with if you were in writers' rooms experiencing them yourself. So with that context, I dug into my audio archives and I found the original question that I had asked Karen. And I was wondering what some of your questions were that you left the panel with. My my main question is always uh, has to do with like, because I I feel very comfortable in terms of going into a room, getting to know people, figuring out the work and doing the work that feels like sort of a straightforward thing for me. I was always curious because it felt like everyone on the panel had a very different personality and a very different temperament almost and I really wanted to know 
how people like made friends in that room and like because the social aspect of a writer's room is something that doesn't really get discussed but I think is so important in terms of whether cliques get formed or like how you sort of get in and because people will laugh at your jokes more or less based on whether or not they like you and I was really curious about that because it seemed like we had a few quiet shy people and a few like friendly and booming people and that's something that I'm always curious about in March this year, I had the pleasure of interviewing you for the Satire and Humor Festival. Yeah, that was so fun. Um, and we did it on Skype while I sat in the bathroom of the apartment that I, I lived in. I forgot about that. You were <laughs> in the bathroom. Yeah. The impression that the question that you asked gave me was that there were still things that you were learning about late night. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I'm wondering from that point to now what the key things are that you have learned that have helped you adjust into the job. So when I first started, I got bits of advice from a lot of different people who are all so kind, but the main thing was that it was going to take a lot more months than I expected to get situated, and that it was very normal. And so I have a friend who is at The Daily Show, and he was like, yeah, it's going to take you six to seven months to figure out not only your relationship to people, but their relationships with each other. And like, if maybe people don't like each other or people do like each other, like what, you know, where that is and stuff. And um, then somebody at my job gave me really great advice. Like, don't focus on outside work until at least six months in, because you're going to take a long time to adjust to it and the demands of it. Plus it's like a learning curve, like with any new job. So I think at that point I'd only been like two months into this job. And so I was still trying to figure out not only how to do this job well, but also trying to figure out what I didn't know yet about it. Yeah, now I feel a lot better. I think I really like everyone at work. I hope they all like me. I, I think they do. And I feel very comfortable. And I also feel more comfortable bringing up sillier ideas and being like, well, what if we do a sketch about this? Like, I recently wrote a sketch where Amber Ruffin thinks she got called in to be the whistleblower, but she's actually the whistleblower for, like, a small community garden in Michigan. Like, it's such a dumb thing. And I wrote it being like, I don't know if this will work. And then I gave it to my friends, like, Allie and Amber being like, do you guys mind looking at this? And then we sent it in, and it, like, worked and got on the show. And that was a moment of, like, oh, I can get really dumb. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. Oh, my God, anytime. Yay, Pret. <laughs> <laughs> That was an interview with late-night writer, satirist and stand-up comedian Karen Chi. To round off each episode of The Antidote, we're bringing you a performance of a comedy piece that was featured on The Belladonna and is now being brought to life by the vocal talents of readers from around the world. Here is this episode's reading. The Daily Itinerary of Ben Affleck's Phoenix Back Tattoo by Robin Zlotnick, read by Felicia McLeod. 6 a.m. Rise from the ashes. Get it? I'm a phoenix. No, but really. Ben wakes up every morning at 6 without fail. So I do too. Guy's got a lot on his mind. 6.30 a.m. Remind Ben that I'm here. Sometimes he forgets that I exist. Or he tries to. But I don't let him. He looks in the mirror and bam, there I am. Somehow only his seventh biggest mistake. Right behind Julie. Honestly, it's an honor just to be in the top 10 with this dude. 7.30 a.m. After an hour of Ben staring out the window, shaking his head in regret, he finally takes a shower. The freezing cold water is always a shock at first, but eventually it feels refreshing, and I bask in it, preening my badass rainbow feathers and reciting my daily affirmations. 8.15 a.m. While Ben is in his daily therapy session, I'm in mine. It's hard when your existence has been denied for two years. I'm a goddamn beautiful, mythical bird tattoo 
and Ben told everyone I was fake. Oh, it's just for a movie, he said, like he hadn't endured hours of pain to have me etched into his back for eternity. 9.47 a.m. It's just like I've been there for him from day one. I've had his back because I'm literally on his back. And that's how he repays me? 10.33 a.m. You know what really ruffles my enormous colorful feathers? When I was finally finished, splayed out on his back in my full Phoenix glory, he looked over his shoulder, looked me right in the eye and said, I'm Batman. You're telling me that that moment doesn't mean anything to him? 11.26 a.m. Sure. I may not have been the most responsible or adult decision he's ever made, but now he's stuck with me. So he should treat me with the respect I deserve, which is the utmost respect because I'm a giant fucking majestic rainbow phoenix. 12.45 p.m. Man, it always feels good to get that stuff off my luxurious feathered chest every day in more than four hours of therapy. We're both on a journey, you know. Being the giant regrettable tattoo on Ben Affleck's back is not an easy existence. People look at me like I'm the villain, but come on, I'm fucking gorgeous. If I wasn't taking up a good portion of recently divorced guy who's clearly going through a tough time and instead I was like, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel or something, you'd all feel way differently about me. 1 p.m. Meet Jen for lunch to discuss the kids. I try to give her the stink eye, but it's hard too from under Ben's shirt. Listen, I know she's the reason for my existence, but I don't owe her shit. Plus, she's always trying to steal my thunder. Bless his heart, she says. A phoenix rising from the ashes? Am I the ashes in this scenario? Not everything's about you, Jennifer Gardner. 2.30 p.m. Time for the gym. Ben goes every day to ward off his demons. This is my least favorite part of the day. He sweats like a mofo back here. 4 p.m. Cold shower, numero dos. This one lasts for 40 minutes. 5 p.m. Ben and I both relax and begin our daily meditation sessions. I prefer total silence. But Ben likes to punctuate his meditation with deep, sad sighs. They are so deep and so sad. 6 p.m. Get ready for dinner with Matt. Yes, that Matt. 6.45 p.m. Meet Matt at the taco place. Matt and Ben still get together once every couple of weeks for a casual bite to eat and to privately laminate what they perceive as a bad time for white guys in the industry. I know. I know. Hey, I may live on his back, but I don't have to agree with every stupid thing that comes out of his mouth. 8 p.m. Pretend to not be able to decide if we should go for dessert. We always go for dessert. Sometimes while Ben is out of town, it can feel lonely back here, like he's forgotten about me. 9.15 p.m. But when we're home every night and Ben's watching his old movies, quoting himself out loud to me, I know he's thinking of his good old Phoenix friend and how I'll be with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Felicia McLeod is an improviser and comedian based in Chicago. She performs on house teams at I.O., including Nectar and Secret Lawyer, and she's a member of the iconic improv team Matt Damon. Robin Zlotnick is a writer and editor living in L.A. You can find her work in McSweeney's, The Belladonna, Points in Case, and she has written and performed her own sketch show at UCB. I also had to mention this. Robin is also a potter, and you can buy her pottery on her website that is also about her comedy. One of the mugs in her store has the words, farts, 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 stamped into it, and I just think it's a genius enterprise. So you can find out about Zlot's Pots, Felicia McLeod, 
a link to Robin's original piece and links to Karen Chi's website and work in the show notes for this episode. Next time, we're sitting at the back of a theatre in Chicago with improviser, writer, and the Second City Network's own late-night host, Maggie Smith. There's nothing for people to do on a cruise ship, so if you have a 1,200-person theatre and then you do a sketch show in that theatre, it will be full of 1,200 people. You can keep up to date with The Antidote by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or follow The Belladonna Comedy on Twitter at the underscore Belladonna's plural, or find The Belladonna on Facebook, or why not all of these? things. Until next time.